we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikori, an executive director of the Center. And this week's episode is going to be the presentations from a recent panel we had on Ukraine and the migration and refugee consequences of the war that's going on there. And we did something like this a while back, and that was looking at what's going on both in Europe and the United States because of the Ukraine war. But the panel that you're going to be hearing was really more a look over the horizon, a look at what we're likely to expect over the next several months, maybe year, because of the Ukraine war. And the presentations looked at a variety of different aspects, including not just what would happen with migration and refugee flows from Ukraine itself, but consequences elsewhere in the world because of the war in Ukraine. If you want to listen to the whole thing, and you could even watch it, you can go to our website at cis.org. That will include all the question and answer session, which we're not including here for brevity's sake. And the first speaker is. Nayla Rush, who's a senior researcher here at the center, and she is talking about what the situation is in the United States with Ukrainian refugees and quasi-refugees, as it were, people who are admitted not as refugees but are essentially treated as such. And that's a good deal of what Nayla will be talking about. And there will be a paper relatively soon that lays out a lot of this information, probably be online maybe when you're listening to this podcast or maybe next week. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, everybody, for being here. What I'm going to do is talk about what lies ahead for the millions of Ukrainian refugees. As the crisis stretches in time and space, we should witness movements of onward migration, even beyond Europe, as well as new refugee flows. So a couple of notes here before I start. We're witnessing new developments every day, which obviously I cannot cover. But if anything, these reinforce the hypothesis I present to you today, which is that the future likely scenario is one towards new refugee flows and onward migration in and outside Europe instead of large-scale returns. This presentation is derived from a report I wrote on Ukrainian refugees six months into the crisis. Well, now it's beyond six months. So let's start with the numbers. These are UNHCR numbers for the first six months of the conflict. Seven million Ukrainians, mostly women and children, because as women, we know, men aged 18 to 60 are not allowed to leave Ukraine, sought refuge across Europe since the recent Russian invasion. Four million registered for the EU temporary protection. So why this discrepancy? Because 2.5 million went to non-EU countries which do not have temporary protection. And only 25,000 applied for asylum in the EU. 
Most refugees flee to neighboring countries, but this initial movement can be followed by onward migration, depending on welcoming policies and protection, but also on diaspora and economic opportunities. There is no legal ground for distribution of Ukrainian refugees among EU member states. Onward migration here follows personal initiatives. So Ukrainian refugees choose the country they want to settle in and apply for temporary protection. For example, of the 5.6 million who fled to Poland, only 1.3 applied for TP there. One word about this temporary protection, it looks like it's not going to be that temporary. Actually, it was just announced that it will be extended through 2024. Also, those who decide to return to Ukraine can keep their protection, a measure, I believe, aimed at inciting returns. Permanent return is not on the agenda for the majority of Ukrainian refugees for a number of reasons. Many come from provinces that are now controlled by Russia, There's the persistence of hostilities that undermine reconstruction attempts. Also, research showed that women and children have a relatively low probability of returning, especially the longer the war lasts and the children are rooted in schools. UNHCR calculated border crossings in and out of Ukraine from February to August. Movements back to Ukraine do not necessarily indicate sustainable returns, as the situation across Ukraine remains highly volatile. So most returns of refugees are not permanent, but what we call pendular, meaning these are back and forth movement to visit family, (laughs) get supplies, or help other relatives evacuate. According to IOM, only 10% of refugees returned home with the intention of staying. Even then, returns may not be long-term. So will we see uh, future flows? As the conflict stretches in time and space, more Ukrainians obviously will want to flee their country. Plus, men could decide to join their spouses when restrictions on their group is lifted or even in defiance of an ongoing mobilization, which means that part of the family union can be taking place out of Ukraine and not in the other direction. So the idea that all Ukrainians want to return home is not supported by data on migration intentions. According to the World Gallup poll, even prior to the February 24 invasion, 25% of the adult population in Ukraine wished to migrate for various reasons, including corruption, ongoing violence, lower living standards, and inviting diaspora. So 25% of those wanting to leave corresponds to about 12 million people. That is an important number. So now that this pre-existing desire to leave has forcibly become a reality for millions of Ukrainians, many will want to hang on to this reality and not go back even if the conflict ends. Which means that the refugee flow created by this conflict could turn into a permanent one for millions who wanted out anyway. The preferred destinations of Ukrainians before this recent conflict gives us an idea of the distribution of Ukrainian refugees today. Of those who wanted to leave Ukraine before, around half wanted to move to EU countries, like Poland, Germany, Italy, etc. Outside the EU, 15% wanted to move to the US, 13% to Russia, and 6% to Canada. 
We can see how the distribution of Ukrainian refugees now fits the narrative of countries listed as favorite destinations prior to the crisis. Russia, Poland, Germany, for example, host today millions of Ukrainian refugees. Outside of Europe, Canada is giving temporary resident visas to Ukrainians. From March to October, you had 6,000 applications, 300,000 were approved. As for U.S., we'll talk about it in a bit. Now, increasing numbers of Ukrainian refugees might be moving out of Europe. Europe's economy, obviously, is further challenged by millions of Ukrainian refugees and soaring energy prices. Its integration capacity, including job markets, education, housing, etc., is close to reaching its limits. With time, Ukrainians could find non-European countries, including the U.S., more and more attractive. So let's move to the admissions of Ukrainians in the U.S. Since the beginning of the crisis, we had some 100,000 Ukrainians were admitted under a program called Uniting for Ukraine. Those are admitted as parolees. Around 900 were admitted under a refugee resettlement program. Those are admitted as refugees. So what's the difference between the two? In a few words, the process to resettle refugees here takes time, over a year. The resettlement program offers a durable solution for refugees. They have to apply for a green card one year after admission. They are provided with multiple federal benefits upon arrival and beyond to help them integrate. Parole, on the other hand, is quick. It's just an official permission to enter and remain temporarily in the U.S. Parolees have limited access to federal benefits. But a bill was passed by Congress in May to give Ukrainian parolees the same federal assistance as resettled refugees. So these numbers I just listed, these newcomers, add to the existing immigrant community of 350,000 Ukrainians who are already here. I want to talk about Uniting for Ukraine just a little bit more. It is presented as a private sponsorship program, and it's a fast-track admissions pathway which was designed by Biden to admit Ukrainians straight from Europe. So how does it work? You have a U.S.-based sponsor who, by the way, does not need to be a U.S. citizen or even a green card holder. They can be parolees, they can be asylees, or even beneficiary of deferred enforced departure, what we call DEDs. So this sponsor, U.S.-based, agrees to provide a Ukrainian beneficiary with financial support during his stay here. But other people or even organizations like resettlement agencies that are mostly funded by the government can also offer financial support to facilitate admissions. Ukrainian parolees who now have access to federal benefits can in turn sponsor other Ukrainians here. Once again, in case these funds are not sufficient, organizations can intervene to get the process going. In conclusion, what we could end up with is a taxpayer-funded cycle instead of a private one. So what next? Should we expect more Ukrainians joining their compatriots in the U.S.? 100,000 were admitted in just a few months. Could we expect 200, 300,000 next year? Will we witness family reunions in the U.S. with men joining in? We saw before this conflict 
millions of Ukrainians wish to leave their country to live elsewhere. It would make sense if many of these family reunions were to take place on American soil. Final thoughts. We're witnessing new developments with Russian men fleeing their country to avoid the military service. Many countries in Europe were quick to close their borders. Two Russians even made it to Alaska. My boat. (laughs) Landed. (laughs) So our Russian flows, men, not women, towards the U.S. likely. We'll have to wait and see. But I don't think the Biden administration is ready for a uniting for Russia program just yet. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to your questions and comments. The next speaker is Christoph Veresh, who's a visiting fellow here at CIS, but is a senior researcher at the Migration Research Institute in Budapest. And what he's going to talk about is what he saw in a recent trip to Ukraine with regard to what are called internally displaced people. In other words, people who aren't technically refugees because they haven't left their country, but they're no longer in their homes. They've had to flee because of the war. And that's relevant to the broader issue, specifically to U.S. refugee and migration policy, but also to Europe, because those are the kinds of people who are most likely then to subsequently leave Ukraine. In other words, they're already not in their homes. So those are the people who are most likely to be the people who would then move on to Europe or the United States. So it was an interesting look at what he saw during a recent trip. Thank you, Mark. Since the start of Putin's invasion, uh, more than 7 million people fled Ukraine. There has been intense media focus on the situation of these refugees including the EU's swift and unified response to this emergency, as well as frontline countries' efforts to tackle the greatest displacement crisis since the end of World War II. However, much less attention was paid to those Ukrainians who were forced to flee their homes, but for various reasons, stayed inside Ukraine, despite of the fact that their numbers is almost as high as the number of international refugees. My presentation is going to focus on these people, these internally displaced people, or IDPs. First, let's look at the numbers and the macro trends. As of the 26th of September, there are 6.2 million IDPs inside Ukraine countrywide. The average duration of their displacement is 160 days after 240 days of war. There has been a geographical shift in the distribution of IDPs inside the country. As you can see on the map, the western macro region experienced a decrease of more than 500,000 IDPs in the past months. This is part of a longer trend. The number of IDPs in the western macro region reached its uh, highest level in late May, almost 3 million people, and has been declining ever since. Why? Initially, only the westernmost parts of Ukraine were deemed safe, Consequently, a large portion of displaced people were fleeing to this region. However, after the war became localized to the eastern and southern eastern parts of the country, people started returning home to the central uh, region and to the Kyiv macro region, while at the same time, new IDPs coming from the east don't always flee all the way to the Polish border. Right now, 63% of all IDPs are from the east macro region of Ukraine. 
Overally, in the past uh, 10 months, there has been a 10% decrease in the number of IDPs. The blue columns represent IDPs. The gray one is non-IDPs who intend on uh, leaving their habitual residence. And the green one is uh, returnees. So as you can see, there is a great fluctuation in um, IDPs because right now almost as many people who used to be IDPs have returned to their homes as the total number of IDPs. According to uh, a recent IOM survey, presently 2.2 million people, non-IDPs, are actively considering leaving their habitual residence due to the war, due to the start of the heating season, and various other reasons. Among IDPs, 82% want to stay in the country, only 3% wants to move abroad. In the rest of my presentation, I'm going to focus more specifically on the Lviv region and the city of Lviv, which is the westernmost uh, oblast of Ukraine bordering uh, Poland. The population of Lviv region is uh, just under 2.5 million people. The population of the city of Lviv is 700,000. I managed to obtain data directly from the Lviv Regional Military Administration. According to their numbers, right now there are more than 250,000 IDPs in Lviv Oblast who arrived and registered and are intending to stay there, at least in the short term. 178,000 IDPs arrived in family units with 75,000 children. People who arrived in the region from territories where active hostilities are taking place initially found temporary shelter in railway stations, then in schools, then in cultural institutions. IDPs housed in schools had to be recently relocated because of the start of the school year at the beginning of September. The Lviv military administration employed a number of coping strategies to provide more permanent housing for IDPs staying in the region. Obviously, the fastest way is the state's purchase of newly constructed or already existing housing stock. As of the beginning of July, 1,900 apartment buildings has been purchased by the Lviv military administration, which can house up to 5,000 IDPs in the region. The problem with this solution is that, first of all, it's expensive, and it cannot be achieved on a large scale in a matter of months. Another way to increase the existing housing stock is through the repair of existing dormitories, other social infrastructure facilities, and the conversion of non-residential premises into housing. The Lviv military administration allocated more than 80 million US dollars so far for the repurposing of already existing social infrastructure to create housing for uh, 20,000 IDPs. Now, if we add these two numbers together, that's 25,000. That barely covers 10% of the IDP population presently in the Lviv region. At the same time, 250,000 people is 10% of the region's uh, population, which is a lot of people to go there. And obviously that caused a huge spike in rent prices in the region, and more specifically in the city of Lviv, where uh, rent prices increased 9% just from July to August. Consequently, renting is not a viable option for a large portion of IDPs, especially because unemployment runs at 31% nationally among them. Because of all the above-mentioned factors, a large number of them staying in the Lviv Oblast are forced to still live in uh, temporary accommodations. 
When we visited Lviv, we were um, surprised to see that uh, local church organizations have an outsized role in caring for IDPs in Lviv. In every church that we went to, there were small shelters housing people from other parts of the country. Usually, they house between 20 or maximum uh, 40 people. Usually, the people who stay at these church-run shelters are the vulnerable ones, the elderly, the disabled, a lot of children. They have these uh, church organizations. They have a huge problem right now because they can only rely on their own resources. Every pastor that we talked to said that there is no significant aid coming from abroad. This means uh, two things. First of all, it seems that international NGOs are uh, focusing their activities on parts of Ukraine heavily affected by the fighting, and uh, they are not partnering with these uh, church organizations in the western part of the country, while at the same time, there is no direct aid going to these NGOs and church organizations uh, from uh, governments from abroad. Another camp that we uh, visited in Lviv is called Mariupolis, because most of the IDPs staying there originally came from Mariupol, which is now under Russian occupation. This is a modular camp donated by the Polish government, built in direct partnership with Lviv City Council. It can house up to 300 people. There are three camps like this uh, in Lviv, housing 1,200 people. These modular units are winterproof. They can withstand uh, cold weather up until minus 5 degrees Fahrenheit. Why is it important that they are modular? It's an important factor because they can be reassembled elsewhere. If Lviv doesn't need these camps anymore, they can just be taken apart and reassembled elsewhere in a, in a matter of weeks. One unit is a 220 square foot big, has two bunk beds for four people and two closets, so it's designed for small family units. People can stay in these camps for free for up to six months. The problem with this camp is it's not a permanent solution either. The camps are supposed to be a transitory measure for those people who want to stay in the Lviv region and who want to integrate into the city and who doesn't want to go back to where they came from. At the beginning of my presentation, I mentioned that there are 6.2 million IDPs in Ukraine. And uh, caring for them is a huge problem, both for the Ukrainian government and the international community. The problem is that there are much more people who need uh, humanitarian assistance inside the country. These pictures were taken in uh, Borodyanka. This is a completely bombed out neighborhood next to Kyiv. People had to leave these apartment buildings, obviously. And right now they live in a camp, again, provided by the Polish government, right next to their bombed out residential buildings. Technically speaking, these people are not IDPs. They do not show up in our statistics. But at the same time, they also need exactly the same kind of care that those people need who are, by definition, uh, IDPs. In conclusion, with now winter coming and with the energy crisis, Monica is going to talk about that, the situation of IDPs and other people, between 3 and 5 million people on top of 6 million IDPs, it is going to be a problem because most of the temporary shelters in the western part of the country are running at capacity. A solution would be for more international aid to go to the western parts of the country, 
and a more intense partnership with local NGOs as well as church organizations to help them tackle the humanitarian crisis enfolding the western parts of the country too. If more help is not going to go to the western parts to help care for these IDPs, and then there's going to be an escalation in the war with damage uh, to infrastructure, heat generation, and electricity, a large number of these people might be forced to cross international borders and become refugees in Europe. Thank you. The next speaker is Monica Palotai, and she is a visiting fellow at the Hudson Institute, which is a different think tank here in Washington that deals more with national security issues, but also with energy issues. And that's what she's going to be talking about. She also accompanied Christoph on that trip to Ukraine, but her presentation is about what has happened to the energy system you know, the electricity, gas, all of that because of the war and how that is likely to drive migration and refugee flows, especially once winter comes, because it's pretty obvious and various invaders have learned over the centuries, Ukraine can get pretty cold in the winter. And in the summer, when the heating system and even electricity is disrupted or broken, and all the windows in your apartment are smashed, etc., it's not as big a deal. It's still bad, but it's not the same problem as when all of that is true and it's 20 degrees below outside. So her point in this presentation is to talk about the preconditions that could be driving new waves of refugee flows out of Ukraine, both into Europe and ultimately some into the United States. I have to admit something. I thought that I was going to be ready with the presentation over the weekend and get, gather the data, and I will be done with that. Now, I was, but uh, then I woke up Monday morning, and half of Ukraine was ruined. Most of the infrastructure was bombed, shelled, and the situation changed. This is how volatile the situation is. This is how uncertain everything at the moment. In early September, when we were in Ukraine with Kristof, we traveled uh, to Lviv, Kiev, and Odessa Oblast. And that time we faced the genuine fear of people, government officials and uh, church organizations that Russian made or would actually destroy the energy infrastructure to disable and cripple Ukraine and actually put more pressure on Europe. And this is what happened when I woke up on Monday morning. Meanwhile, we were also informed that the central government asked church organizations and other NGOs to formulate Plan B in case of partial or full halt of the provided energy by the central government. As we have seen it on Monday, and I'm sure you've seen it on the news as well, and Tuesday, that fear of the Ukrainians was not unfounded. As of last week, before that shelling, 50% of electricity generation was either destroyed, damaged, or occupied. According to Ukraine's energy minister, Herman Halushenko, Russia hit about 30% of Ukraine's remaining energy infrastructure, in its missile attack on Monday and Tuesday. That is additional on the 50% that was previously ruined, occupied, or just partially damaged. Ukraine also urged civilians on Tuesday not to use domestic appliances like ovens, washing machines, to save electricity as millions faced blackouts. Businesses were also asked to cut down on usage. Now, I would like to remind you that there are also territories in Ukraine that are just recently liberated. There is no electricity and no heating over there. These are additional problems that will come on top. And also there are territories, so-called red zones, 
where you can find active piping, which is also lacking electricity and heating and other infrastructures. These are the cities that were targeted on Monday and Tuesday. The IDP hub that Christoph was talking about, the westernmost biggest city, Lviv infrastructure, was one of the hardest hit. That was supposed to be the safest oblast. In most cities, power was restored in 24 hours. However, as of this morning, there were parts of the attacked cities where heating and electricity was still out. The temperature at the moment in Ukraine ranges between the high 40s and low 50s. Here you can see the energy infrastructure of Ukraine. And if I go back to the previous one and you compare it, you can see these are pretty much the same cities that were shelled. So that's intentional. Ukraine was going to be crippled, and that was the intention of Russia. It's not a new tactic from Russia that they are targeting the infrastructure, but it was not always like that. At the beginning of this year, before the war, the Ukrainian energy sector was one of the most developed in Europe. Ukraine had one of the largest electricity generation capacities, was among the top three natural gas producers, and had the largest underground gas storage in Europe. Ukraine was second only to France in Europe when it comes to the amount of power that the country generates from nuclear energy. It provided more than half of the country's electricity in 2021. However, Zaporozhia, the nuclear plant, I'm sure you have heard about it, which is the largest in the continent, is now shut down. Before Monday's attack, the remaining plants in, in the country were responsible for about 35% of power generation, but are under constant assault. According to the latest government figures, Ukraine has accumulated approximately 2.2 million tons, which is about 24.2 million U.S. tons of coal and 13.5 uh, million BCM of natural gas, which is needed for central heating and electricity generation, which was going to be actually enough for, for Ukraine to survive the winter. Given the 35% decline in consumption due to the outflow of population and the slump in industrial production, not only enough. But President Zelensky announced in June that Ukraine began exporting electricity to the EU using an interconnection with Romania, starting with 100 megawatts. Also was hoping to bring 1.45 billion from electricity exports to the EU. This was a major step toward reducing Ukraine and actually Europe's reliance on Russian energy imports. Far-reaching wartime reforms, including the totally reconnecting its energy to the grid, to Europe at the record speed ever. Actually, it was connected just like one day before the war broke out. Never happened before. Proper testing was not uh, implemented because the Russians were already at the doors. Meanwhile, and by that, Ukraine could have maintained vital energy output while a reliable network of oil and natural gas pipelines has ensured consistent fuel delivery. Additionally, active war was mainly pushed back to the eastern regions, implying that the capital Kiev and the western oblasts are relatively safe. Now that was Sunday. And then Monday happened and everything changed. So until the critical infrastructures weren't targeted by the missiles. Monday's strikes hit the thermal generation and the electrical substations that forced Ukraine to suspend electricity exports from the 11th of October, which is Tuesday, I guess to stabilize its own energy system, which is absolutely understandable. Therefore, the EU member states will have to face additional decrease in import. 
in the largest attack carried out in the, on Ukrainian energy grid since the early days of the invasion, missiles tore into electricity and heating plants across 10 cities. Lviv, Khmelnytsky, Zetomir, Kharkiv, they were left completely without electricity and heating. Attacks, however, or, uh, continued on Tuesday as well, when Russia kamikaze drones just struck on another thermal power plant in Venezia. Later, on Tuesday again, Russia kidnapped the deputy head of Zaporozhia nuclear power plant, detaining him in an unknown location. This is again another problem that Europe and actually everybody or all the nations across the globe has to face the nuclear threat of Russia. Nevertheless, the greatest challenges lie ahead as the impending winter will tighten the news on Ukraine and challenge Europe's politicians. Now, why these cities? I have already mentioned that if we put together the two maps, these just cover each other. But the system in Europe and in Ukraine is slightly different from the United States. Russia, however, deliberately wants to freeze Ukraine and the European Union as well. On average, in Ukraine, 45% of the buildings are connected to the central heating system, to which the heat is supplied for from two main types of facilities. The first one is the combined heat and power plant that is designed to produce heat and electricity simultaneously. The second one is to the heat plants. While both mainly rely on natural gas, and that's why it was so important that before the war, actually, Ukraine was able to provide its own natural gas, and it has got Europe's biggest storage as well. And that was important before Monday, because it doesn't exist now. And also... There are smaller thermal power plants are scattered all around these cities. Now, the highest share of residential buildings equipped with central heating facilities are Zaporizhka, Donetsk, Dnipropetrovska, Kharkiv Oblast, and Kyiv cities. You could see on the map that these were the cities that were the hardest hit. These cities also reliant on the central heating system from 55 to 89%. So they are very reliant. Whenever these infrastructures are done, these cities are going to be out of power without electricity, without heat, without anything. And we are talking about mostly not high rises like here, but what you could have seen on the pictures, what we both showed with Krzysztof. So it's not possible to set up gas burners in the middle of the apartment. So they are just going to be out without, with no electricity at all. And these cities and these infrastructures were intentionally targeted. Weaponization of energy and keeping the chokehold both on Ukraine and therefore on Europe has severe implications. The first one is with the severe damage to the energy infrastructure, the country faces blackouts and difficulties in heating, just as I explained. The red zones are a little bit different because active fight is going on there. There is no heat, no electricity. There is nothing over there. The rural areas are especially vulnerable because they are just cut out of everything. The cities are vulnerable as well, but for different reasons, as I explained, because when the critical infrastructures are targeted and they are done, these cities are going to be out of energy. Ukraine traditionally faces harsh winter. Actually, the first snow has already arrived to the easternmost part of Ukraine, and that's why winterization is going to be really crucial at this time. However, it is going to face way more difficulties than before Monday. Giving out blankets, warm clothes, generators, and setting up hotspots, and I'm not talking about internet, in, in the community centers and cities is going to be crucial. In the rural areas, there is going to be a huge difference because these community centers, it's just going to be one room that is a hotspot. But in rural areas, there are no such centers. 
So what the international NGOs are planning to do, and actually they are doing it now, like every five to 10 houses, they're going to insulate one room. One room that is going to be enough for all that five, 10 houses, and they are going to heat that up. It's possible to do that because they can have these small burners and it can warm it up. And also don't forget it that they can cook on those little burners as well. What you can buy in any stores when you go to camping. This is in high demand, actually, in uh, Ukraine. However, as Christoph mentioned, it depleting aid to local organizations is a huge problem. The looming nuclear strike, the energy shortage, and the uncertainty of shellings in the previously safe areas are potentially trigger another wave of refugees to Europe. The situation is quite severe and volatile, as I mentioned. It can change any day. There could be another shelling. There could be another missile strike on the remaining infrastructure. And it doesn't matter how hard the Ukrainian government and local NGOs are trying to repair those infrastructures. That is possible. Obviously, information is hard to get. I was trying to get information on the shelling that happened on Monday and Tuesday. But uh, for understandable reasons and for strategic reasons, they don't want to give out the information and provide it, extra information to the Russians that which grids, which infrastructure is severely damage, damaged and which are not. So we don't have exact data on that. The economies of the EU member states are on the rocks, as I'm sure you've heard about it. And the question where the EU is going to find the millions to host refugees when it happens. Amid inflation, skyrocketing prices and mandatory demand distraction is also a problem in Europe. That is going to be an issue. Hosting and integrating Ukrainian refugees could cost host nations an estimated 30 billion US dollars in this year alone. Thank you so much for your attention. The final speaker is Victor Marshai. He is the director of the Migration Research Institute in Budapest. And his area is Africa. That's his area of specialty. And you might say, you know, what's the, well, how is that relevant to here? What he's talking about is that the disruption of food and grain exports, as well as fertilizer exports from Ukraine and from Russia because of the war there, is actually fueling hunger and therefore political disruption in many Middle Eastern and African countries. And that itself is almost certain to prompt new migration flows, both into Europe and we're seeing into the United States too, because there's a significant number of African migrants who are coming through Latin America and Central America to respond to President Biden's invitation to illegal immigration across our border. So it was an interesting way of looking at what the follow-on effects, if you will, the sort of third-order effects of the war in Ukraine may well be on migration from Africa and the Middle East. Thank you, Mark, ladies and gentlemen. I welcome everybody. It's a big uh, honor for me to be here uh, on, the, on the side of the Atlantic Ocean. My topic is perhaps not so close at first sight. The whole Ukrainian issue, and we saw the how the Maslow pyramid of uh, security studies is working when we are speaking on uh, nuclear potential of a nuclear war and escalation of war in Eastern Europe. Food security and migration seems a secondary or, or, or thirdly issue. But it's, uh, as Monica mentioned, as energy is weaponized and instrumentalized in this context, we can see food crisis as migration 
in some aspect also instrumentalized and, and weaponized in the global theater. The research methodology, which was conducting the, the framework of the OTCA project of the Hungarian Academy of Science based in the National University of Public Service Cooperation with the, the Migration Research Institute, is trying still to, to map the, the consequences of the war and mainly the effects of food crisis in Africa. And very important to underline that the war in Ukraine was and is just the last straw that broke the back of the, the food security in uh, Africa and which led to, a, let's say, uh, as, as experts say, a perfect storm, uh, a perfect humanitarian crisis in the continent. If we have a look at the numbers, even before the invasion of Ukraine, globally 1.1 billion people suffered the lack of uh, food insecurity. After the invasion, thank you, Mr. Putin, this number uh, rose up uh, 1.6 billion. Currently, the latest data, almost 450 million people around the globe living in acute food insecurity, which it means actually that they are uh, on the brink of uh, starvation. And while we are speaking on, on the nuclear escalation is a potential, it's fact on the ground that people are dying because of the famine and starvation on different parts of uh, the Middle East and Africa. According to rough estimations of different NGOs, every fourth second one people die because of malnutrition and starvation. It means that 20,000 people each day is dying currently while we are sitting here. In this crisis, most of them now in the sub-Saharan part of Africa, Somalia, the Sahara region, uh, and lesser extent, Sudan and South Sudan. And it has also an important effect on migration, currently mainly on IDPs in the continent. Even before the, the start of the war, there were more than 30 million uh, refugees and IDPs in Africa. After the, the breakout of the war, uh, it increased almost by 4 million people. And it's very important to underline that these are the official data. But the unofficial data is many times more. Uh, just one example, I visited uh, Egypt in last October. That time, according to the data of IOM, 6.5 million foreign people were in Egypt, mainly from Sudan and South Sudan, so, so the sub-Saharan part. Currently, one year later, the data is almost 9 million, only in Egypt. And only, it's very important, these are the official data. Unofficial data can say it's 15 million people, foreign-born migrants, uh, currently in Egypt. And the shift is definitely because the deteriorating food situation on the ground. As I mentioned, Ukraine was just the last straw. Africa is going through a deep humanitarian crisis because of different structural issues, which emerged mainly in the last two years or partially in the last two years. We don't have time to go to the details. I would like to mention only some of them. Of course, demography, the huge demographic pressure still on the continent. The latest report of the United Nations just came out from the, the, the world population trends. And definitely still the population in Africa is booming and it's will still booming in, at the end of the, this century, while by the mid of this century, all other continent will stop in the increase. Food crisis, ladies and gentlemen, food crisis uh, has started to increase since May 2020 and there's not stop in this process, even before the invasion. 24th of February, the prices increased of different foods between 50 and 100%. It's very important that these are, in many cases, not the official number, but the, the real numbers. I, I visited uh, uh, Addis Ababa in May. 
and people complain me that official inflation is just around uh, 30%, but the price of, for example, uh, cafe or teff, the, the grain that they are using, doubled in the last uh, six months before my visit. And after the invasion, an additional 50-100% increase happened also in the, the, the prices of food, which means a huge burden of households. Currently, in many households in sub-Saharan Africa, spending 60 or definitely 100% of their money for food. Drought. Why the, the increase of food prices started uh, two years ago? Because of the, the different effects of climate change in East Africa, for rainy season failed in the last two years. And it seems that, unfortunately, the FIPS will fail also. In some regions, it, it means that between 80 and 95% of the whole livestock, the, because there are nomadic population here, has already perished. And ladies and gentlemen, it's also very important to underline then for agriculture, if the rains arise, it means that within two or four months, they will have crops. But if animals are dying and it happened, it will take between seven and 10 years to gain the same amount of the herds which happened before the famine. It destroyed the whole food supply chain in, in certain parts of Ethiopia, Kenya, and Somalia. We saw similar drought in, in West Africa, also the lack of rains in the last one and a half years. And we shouldn't forget the effects of the pandemic, ladies and gentlemen, because during COVID-19, these communities have already lived up their reserves. At the beginning of the, the COVID, they could have some reserves to, to survive, to share it among the, the, the certain communities, families. Now it was exploited. There's no any potential to involve more money and food into the system. And as I mentioned, some actors, and it's very evident, like jihadist organizations or uh, insurgency groups, for example, Ashabam in Somalia, utilizing uh, the starvation to demonstrate themselves as potential actors distributing food or destroy government humanitarian support for the population to jeopardize the credibility of central governments. We should mention also the shocking energy prices, which also fuel inflation. It's also common sense and political challenges. Ladies and gentlemen, we see all the new civil wars in different parts of the continent, uh, South Sudan, Ethiopia, Somalia and the Sahel, which also make extremely hard to feed the population in different parts of the, the drought-affected areas. And we should mention also political instability, for example, in coups in the Sahara region. Six coups happened in the, in the last two years in different uh, countries of West Africa. It's very important also to emphasize that it's a new phenomenon. Africa was the house of coup during the Cold War, but uh, it ceased to exist in the 90s and the early 20s. Unfortunately, it seems that because of political instability, because of social uh, challenges, coups are returning to the continent. In the last straw of Ukraine, many African countries, not only in the sub-Saharan part, also in the northern part of the continent, imported most of their grains and different foods from both Ukraine or Russia. For example, in the case of the aforementioned Somalia, it was above uh, 90%, but also, for example, in the case of Egypt, with its uh, 110 million population, also 80% of the food arrived from uh, Ukraine and Russia, it's all, almost completely stopped. And while, for example, Egypt, which has a relatively strong government, still has a dominant regional power and extending networks, it managed to bridge this gap and Cairo found alternative supply lines. 
But for instance, Somalia, South Sudan, as I mentioned, as let's say at least fragile or failed states, uh, they, they, they don't have capacity to find alternative sources. The only potential is the aid from international organizations. But don't forget that uh, international NGOs and the, big, the United Nations and bilateral donors currently have to cope not only the food crisis in Africa, but also in the Middle East and South Asia, not to mention the refugee crisis from Ukraine, which was mentioned by Christoph. Regularly are focusing on just this food issue, but the Ukrainian crisis has also, and the war has also effects on other sectors, which also contributed to the, the economic decline in Africa. For example, tourism. In Egypt, 25% of tourists arrived from Ukraine and Russia. Now uh, there's nobody. It means that hundreds of thousands of jobs had uh, disappeared from the system. So they don't, these people can't earn money, so they can't feed their families there also. We see, of course, less political attention for the, the crisis, both from the West and from Russia and China on the continent. And the new Cold War competition, which is uh, emerging uh, in the continent, of course, not only uh, in the last months, but in the last years, also jeopardized the, the potential for an international cooperation to tackle somehow with these crises. What's the current situation on migration? As I mentioned, actually, mass starvation and actually dying because of malnutrition started uh, since uh, June, which led to the increasing number of IDPs. People uh, are uh, trying to reach refugee camps, settlements, or at least cities where they can find some food, some uh, support, or, or some job. We don't know the exact numbers. Of course, in Africa, it's a never easy issue. Only in Somalia, since the beginning of this year, one million people wandered to the cities and the refugee settlements. All around the continent, as I mentioned, it must be millions since the beginning of uh, this year, if not tens uh, of millions of people. We see the effects also on the borders of Europe. Somebody argues that uh, the starving people will flood Europe. No, it's still not true and, and it will not be true because uh, it's not so easy to reach Europe without the assistance of smuggling networks, which cost a lot of money. Now it's in the sub-Saharan Africa, it influenced the local political stability, which of course later can uh, generate a bigger migration. But who are coming in an increasing number? People from North Africa. Still, if we have a look at the statistics, um, most peoples coming from Africa in the uh, different Mediterranean routes uh, to Europe, they are coming from the MENA region and from Morocco to Egypt. What we can see now, the, the increasing number of people from the middle class who are leaving because of the, the, the wrong economic situation and because of the lack of perspectives. It's shocking, ladies and gentlemen, that visiting Egypt, or I, I came back uh, three weeks ago from Tunisia, speaking with young people, everybody, everybody actually, literally, uh, wants to leave their countries. And the main destination is definitely Europe. And it's also some words about the numbers, because comparing with the, the illegal border crossing attempts in the, in, the, in the southern part of the United States, perhaps these numbers are not so high. But in Tunisia, people told me oh, it's, it's, the real numbers are, are three or four times more what the, the European Coast Guards uh, realize, because most people don't want to make a touch with the local authorities because they are afraid to be deported back. 
So middle class is leaving, and it's very important that they have still the financial background to, to make the crossing to Europe uh, in illegal channels. So the conclusion, Africa is going through uh, an unprecedented humanitarian crisis, which haven't happened uh, in the last four decades uh, at least. And in the shadow of the, the war in Ukraine, actually, it's a little hope for more support for the continent. In the last months, actually, we saw a lot of steps. For example, from the United States, USAID offered uh, $1.4 billion just for East Africa. And it's also very important to underline that the main donors for the continent still Western countries and org- organizations. But, but watching the number of people in suffer only in East Africa, by the end of this year, 50, 50 million people will need food supply. It's just a drop in the, the ocean. And it will mean a huge burden for Europe, which is uh, already uh, uh, been struggling with, with multiple challenges from refugee crisis to increasing energy prices and inflation. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. If you have any question, I'm ready to answer it. So those are the four presentations. As I said before, if you want to see the whole thing, including the question and answer session, you can take a look at it on our website at cis.org. As usual, if you have complaints, compliments, whatever about the podcast, please leave them if you get this podcast on a platform that allows that kind of thing, rating or reviews, or just feel free to contact me directly the best way is through Twitter. My handle is Mark S. as in Stephen Krikorian, Mark S. Krikorian. My direct messages are open, so you can just leave me a message there if you have anything positive or negative to say about the podcast or about the presentation that we offered today. That's it for this week's episode of Parsing Immigration Policy, and I hope you'll tune in next week. <laughs>